0: I am
1: speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 9 beginning at verse 1. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. My kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Hmm.
2: Hmm.
1: He has great sorrow for his fellow Jews. To them is all of this wonderful stuff. They have all of this, including Jesus, who comes from them, who is a Jew. It is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true biological descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. The children of the promise. What promise? What promise was made to Abraham that is being spoken of here?
3: He will return. He will come back and give some people... You will come back on earth. He's going to come back. Is there a son? Keep going and going and going. Jesus would come through. Oh,
1: Jesus. Okay. Let's. Let's. Thank you. Birthright promise of. You will have children like the stars up in the heaven. And the sands by the seashore. You will be a great nation.
2: And in you all the seed of the earth will be blessed.
1: And in you all of the people of the world will be blessed. Which is the promise of Christ. And God fulfilled it. But the promise itself doesn't go through all of Abraham's kids. Look at Ishmael. It's the child of promise through whom that flows. The miracle provision, Isaac. The child about whom God said you will have this child with Sarah. Even though she's old and you're old. I'm going to make it possible for you to have a kid. And that promise was kept and the child that was born was the line through which all of this occurred and all of this was given. Now that is that is a genetic descendancy. But what Paul is doing is he's hearkening back to what he has said before. It is the child of promise, the child that is the result of faith. faith. Abraham and Sarah's faith. Being willing to act upon the promise. As if Abraham and Sarah had not acted upon the promise. That they would have a child. What would have happened? God would have
2: found another way.
1: God would have found another way. (laughs) Yes God would have found another way. But we wouldn't be having to read this then. It would be completely different. (laughs) different There wouldn't have been an Isaac. Not this way. Not from Abraham and Sarah. Had their faith not functioned eventually after trying to do it their own way, had, had their faith not functioned, had they not acted upon the promise, acted in faith, then Isaac would never have been born. And it was that action and other subsequent actions that was accounted to Abraham as righteousness. Righteousness. And it was that faith action, therefore, which typifies the true descendants of Abraham. And so these Jewish Christians and Jews who are looking down upon Gentile Christians and saying, they're not really the children of God. Paul is saying, no, they are by faith the children of God. Just as you, by faith, are the children of God. Not genetically, but by faith. For righteousness comes for faith. So remember, this is a continuation of the previous arguments from the previous chapters. In which Paul, speaking to the Jewish Christian community, is reminding them again and again and again. You have no business denigrating your Gentile Christian brothers and sisters... Because they are as much children of God as you are if righteousness comes by faith. You may be a biological descendant, and I hurt, and I hurt, and I hurt for my brothers who are biological descendants as well, who are not by faith, who do not exercise faith. Because I want them to partake in the glorious experience of being a child by faith and having the righteousness of God, God, which we will hear about just a little bit later here, applied for faith. Yes.
4: The faith you're talking about was not just believing in God.
1: No, it wasn't just belief. It was,
4: it was, it wasn't faith, not having faith in God, it was not having faith in Jesus, right? It was faith
1: in God. And it was active belief. Um... Abraham receives the promise and then acts upon it, which produces the result of Isaac. Alright? Okay. Now, want to know
4: what the, faith is
1: the faith is the action, not the belief, the action. The action that he took based upon God's promise. His faith, his active belief, his faithing action in God's promise. Through you and Sarah, I will, I will create descendants like the stars up in the heaven and the sands by the seashore. And the Messiah will come who will deliver the world. So
4: I'm talking about the Jews now. At the time of Paul. The God. Jewish. The yeah. We're going to here now, actually. Okay. Their belief... If they believed in God and had faith in God, that's not what was required to sum that they have faith in Jesus. So right? You have to take the second step. Have faith in God through Jesus. But you just couldn't have...
1: I would say that for Christians, the way is to have faith in God through faith in Jesus. But for Jews who are not Christians, let them have faith in God. Abraham's faith. Based on the light they have received, according to Paul in chapter 1 and 2, based on the light they have received, if they have faith in God and it is Abraham's faith, the faith that Abraham exercised, not trusting themselves to approximate the law, but trusting in God to work a miracle producing Isaac, if only he and Sarah would act in faith, that faith in God is what God's looking for. Now we have a name to attach to the one who then intercedes for us, Christ Jesus. But if they, as in anybody, has not, have not received the light of that knowledge or that revelation, do not understand Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, the Redeemer of the world, but have faith in God and are willing to act upon that faith as Abraham did, God honors that.
0: What about the Jews that Paul was talking to you here? That heard his argument, that he's lamenting over, who who rejected Jesus and
1: said, No, you know. Most of those that he's writing, that are overhearing him right now, are Christian Jews. Jews who have accepted Christ as the Messiah. Who, their problem is, is that they're not trusting in God, they're not trusting in faith in Jesus, faith in God. they're trusting themselves. In their circumcision. And they're keeping the dietary regulations. And they're keeping the blood purity laws. They're trusting in themselves. To approximate the righteousness of God. To some degree. And they're depending upon themselves. And their ability. To behave in a certain way. And they're saying. Jesus is great. And it's good that you Gentiles come in. But now. You've got to. Join us and become Jew, and approximate these rules too. And therefore, they were denigrating these Gentiles who weren't doing that.
0: So but the, Paul, pro- the problem with this is they're still waiting for the Messiah. Who? Uh, these these Christian Jews, they're just no, no.
1: The, you don't think the Christian Jew, the the the, the Jewish Christians. Of Paul's day, accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but of, they were uh, waiting they for they him to they come, they come, come back. back, and so were the Gentile
4: Christians. The, the Jews?
1: You're talking about non-Christian Jews. Jews. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the audience to Paul to whom Paul is writing here.
4: Okay. okay. Well, see, what do we? Why are we, we talking to them?
1: Well, he he does mention talk about them in a bit. He talks about them to others, and he's he's. I don't want to get ahead of that argument here. Here's pro, here's here's here is a guess based on everything I know about Paul. And I'm trying not to anticipate what's coming next and that's really tough. But I would say that Paul would hope, pray and proclaim to them Jesus as the Messiah. But more almost more importantly, not quite, but almost he wants them to exercise the faith of Abraham.
4: Wait, what? the faith of abraham
1: rather than trying to do the law and be perfect by the law's design or by a an approximation as articulated by the rabbis of what the law is exercise the faith that abraham had in god and in the promises of god found throughout scripture the hebrew bible isn't he when
3: you say throughout scripture isn't he completely leaving out i mean completely leaving out when he talks about and as you have been, faith of Abraham, faith of Abraham, faith of Abraham, almost killing your son Isaac you had so much faith, right? right? But you left out completely the Mosaic, and that's what that was all. about. Moses
1: According but to the law, the, according to Paul, the right. law teaches us that it isn't by our own works that we can do it, but instead has to be by faith. But then the wall the law, as Jeremiah says, becomes written on our hearts. So Paul, looking at the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, would would tend to say that an, a exercising faith is the critical point. And I would also say he would say that if you if a good Jew were to look at Scripture and exercise the faith of Abraham in its entirety, in the entire nature like Abraham finally did, <laughs> including what the law shows us, and including what all the prophets who came after Abraham, they would then look and see in the Jesus, the Messiah. And that's kind of what he's trying to do. When he speaks to Jews, he's trying to show them, based on the Hebrew Bible, that this Jesus is the Messiah who was promised, who we missed, who you missed. And if you are exercising true faith in God as Abraham exercised it eventually, faith in God. If you exercise faith in God and and did so with within the entire context of knowing what the law is actually for, not to copy it to get into heaven, but to show you your need for faith and not works, your own works for righteousness. And if you were to read the entirety of the prophets that way, You would see in Jesus the Messiah and there'd be no question you'd all become Christians. I believe that Paul probably thought that. And it's one of the reasons why he is so troubled because so many of his brothers and sisters who are Jewish by birth, children according to biology.
4: If I were a Jew and the law came up and I looked at it and I said, no, I'm not going to follow these rules because they don't mean anything. I'm going to go by faith in God. Okay? He would have been
1: stoned. Why do you think Paul was
4: (laughs) threatened to within inches
1: of his life? Before Paul,
4: Paul, way back when the law started. If, If he said, no, these are... This is not right. I'm going to believe that the faith of Abraham. If if a Jew were stoned right now. Well, not
1: quite. If the law first of all, I don't think a Jew would say even Paul doesn't say that the law is meaningless. It has a deep meaning. It shows us God's standard.
2: How far God's far,
1: perfect standard. How
2: far short of it we fall.
1: And the fact that we cannot reach that standard should prove to us That we do not attain righteousness by trying to do it. Instead, righteousness is applied to us the same way it is applied to Abraham and Sarah by faith. And we learn that God's righteous standard in the covenant. We learn that righteous standard. We see it. It also serves the the second step. It's the schoolmaster not only to show us how how far we fall short of God's righteousness. But then it also shows us and gives us an understanding of what a life of faith eventually looks like, to at least an extent. I mean, there's lots of cultural additive there. But a life of faith is not going to be going around constantly breaking, for example, the Ten Commandments. Murdering people, lying all the time, coveting everything you can see. It's not going to be doing that. It simply isn't. And the experience of Christians for generations proves that. It's not a, this is not a vendetta or a crusade against the law so much as its proper interpretation and placement. A Jew prior to Christ, a Jew prior to Paul, if, if one were to come around and make this type of interpretation would probably be stoned in the sense that he would be denying the prevailing understanding and interpretation of the place not just of the law but of the sacrificial system which is also encapsulated within the law that's probably why Paul didn't preach a whole lot of this in Palestine <laughs> <laughs> he went to other parts of the world where Judaism was because possibly he, was, more liberal. He, was the apost- he was the apostle to the Gentiles and the Jews that he preached around were the Jews of the Hellenistic world. They were Greek-speaking Jews who probably didn't read the Torah in Hebrew. They read the Greek translation in the Septuagint. They they would attend a synagogue usually, but they wouldn't keep absolutely 100% of all the rules that they did when they lived in Palestine because they tended to assimilate more into the prevailing Gentile culture. Paul originally came out of... From Tarsus... Came out of a community kind of like that... But he
0: was transplanted
1: into Jerusalem... Where he became a full-fledged Pharisee Jew... And all of that means...
0: Can I ask one question before we leave that? Today... Um, obviously they don't have the sacrificial systems... Within their right. uh, culture... And if that was part of the law... Whereby they were able to be forgiven... Because of that bloodshed... The Jews practicing their faith in keeping their law. Now that the law has been molded and shaped in a little bit differently, and, and that's not part of it anymore, can can you say then that they that they are faithing in keeping the law? H- how would the law validate them when you take the blood sacrifice out of the law, which is certainly out of it right now?
1: The question exists. That no, no, that question exists in 70 AD. And some of the early arguments that existed in the Hebrew community when the destruction of the second temple made raised the question, do we build a new temple? And a temple was built in Egypt for a while. And sacrifices occurred there for a while. And there are Jews today who want to build a new temple and restart the sacrificial system, at least minimally, in order to solve that problem. There are plenty Jews who do not see it as a necessity that the sacrificial system was replaced by the law system and the elevation of Pharisaic Judaism as the only method, and God doesn't need a sacrifice to forgive you when you fail to meet up to the standard of the law, rose up in the teaching of the of the of the rabbis through the centuries post seventy AD. And when you read the Mishnah and the Talmud, you see all these various levels of interpretations on on the question of should we have sacrifices. And their general interpretation was no, because what God wants is a sacrifice of the heart.
0: So what does that do then? And go back. To, I mean, it's a hard question.
1: It's a it? very hard question. Uh, I think we come back to the question of the light that they have received. If they haven't received the the light that a sacrificial system is necessary in their codification of religion and law as contained in the scripture, then I'm not I believe that God understands that. Paul may not. Christian <laughs> well that's a good but point. you see that Paul may not write, because Paul sees that's in so. Christ Jesus the sacrifice. The one eternal sacrifice that is the gold that buys up all of the paper money, the equivalent thereof, of the Jewish sacrificial system prior to him and all the way up to 70 AD and even beyond in Egypt.
0: But that only works if you have faith in Christ. Right. But, but God, that comes with the light right.
1: that Paul recognizes and talks about in Romans 1 and 2.
2: But, the, but Paul also makes the point that um, God, he also, God also has sovereignty. To apply that redemption to whomever he chooses. He, he, he said he's revealed that he will do it. You know guaranteed he will do it to those who act in faith. But also he also has the sovereignty. To mm-hmm. apply it to someone who's acting in faith. That doesn't have the whole life the way that.
1: Yeah we talked about that several weeks back. Or gosh a couple, couple months yeah. ago. Oh, where, we, where we talked about mm-hmm. the question of. Can God save people who don't know Jesus. And the answer is absolutely.
2: And that would include the Jews.
1: That absolutely includes the Jews. Includes whoever God wants. Because of, you know, the parable of the field is, is, is the is the perfect scriptural support for that from Jesus' own mouth. You know, you, you, you buy the field to get the treasure out of it. And it's the person who does the buying that determines what the treasure is. The whole field was bought. And if God wants to receive the Jews... For exercising the faith that they have, with the light that they have received, that God can do it regardless. But if
4: Paul, because, because of Jesus, was a church,
1: I'm sorry,
4: believe that. I'm sorry, what? Paul doesn't believe that, because, he's, and he's, in he's in a church. the church, other church, accepts what Paul says.
1: Paul actually does believe it. He yeah, says absolutely. that the back in chapter two, he says, "Be careful how you judge people, because that God will judge people based upon the light they have received." And if they haven't received the light of necessity for recognizing Jesus specifically, it's God's decision. The concept of Jesus as being the only way to the Father in Christian and scriptural uh, references is not abrogated by the idea that God can receive whoever God wants through what Jesus did.
3: If he really understood that, then I'm completely confused, or he is, about this The very... First two sentences you read. He shouldn't. Why is he so worried? I am speaking him?
1: the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow for unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because he you have everyone. all of these Jewish Christians who know better, who should know better, who are judging their Gentile Christian sister and brethren. Because they're not good Jews.
3: I see the judgment there, but it sounds like and I think that's what Lee's speaking to. He's judging the other Jews, saying, You I have such great sorrow for you, sorrow for you. I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> <laughs> He's <was> speaking unanimously to <laughs>
4: that, yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Let's, you know, let's, said, what about that though? Can we not settle that one issue? If so, Paul has such great sorrow, and yet right here, two two sentences, two paragraphs later, you're trying to it sounds like you are explaining to us that, oh no, no, it's faith, and he's talking about the faith of Abraham, and yes, all Jews are okay, and God's already pre-selected the people, God can do whatever he wants to do, he's God. So he's already pre-selected the people, that, and they can come any way they want to, through him, and so why is Paul so sorrowful for the ones that aren't seeing it, because he ought to know, according to what you've read, that they're going to make it anyway.
2: But we're
3: it. He is sorrowful. I am. I have great sorrow and increasing anger. That Somebody, is a reference specifically to Jewish Christians who are judging Gentile
1: Christians. That's Turn, the okay. Judgment. If you okay, want I to jump it, to everybody. chapter ten, we'll jump to chapter ten. <laughs> no, let's, keep, let's finish. I'm
3: sorry. Because that's what it's, it's a judgment be. thing. Talking, he's talking about. Though.
1: Right now, he's that's dealing it. with the question. Okay. This, this question that we've been dealing with for a very long time.
4: Yeah. It's the behavior.
1: He's, behavior, he's, he's criticizing the behavior of Jewish Christians who are denying the full Christianity of Gentile Christians. He's going to bat for Gentile Christians who are being oppressed by Jewish Christians. He's getting up there and saying, how dare you judge these Gentile Christians for not being good enough, for not being descendants of Abraham. They are very much children of promise by faith.
2: Which is the argument he makes in the following paragraph. And it's not just the the, the biological descendants; it's all it's the children of promise. So Gentiles acting on God's promises by faith are every bit as much children of God as Jews who are Mm -hmm. and and Jewish Christians who have been, who have uh, recognized Jesus as Christ. Absolutely, but I could do a
3: little bit with less, and I think a lot of us could from Paul, with the beating of the breast and the feeling so sorry for these people that don't understand, even though they were faithing and had faith through Abraham. I would much rather he had said straight out, you, I, guys, are, you guys are all over the wrong people. It, well, is, God the, wouldn't like it that.
1: is the same situation as existed in Galatians when yeah, these yeah. Jewish Christians That's were coming along and teaching that you had to be circumcised and follow the dietary regulations in order to be sanctified. Now you could get in and become a Christian just by grace through faith but then you better cut on yourself and stop eating pork or you're not going to be made complete you're not going to be a real full Christian and Paul says that is not another gospel that comes straight from Satan and he says point blank that they are bewitchers and I don't think he views those Jewish Christians who are doing this with a whole lot of love he's really angry at them because they should know better And actually they do know better. It's their culturalism and their bigotry and their hatred of Gentiles causing this. It's, it's a cultural racist action on the part of Jews who hate Gentiles, who hate the Goyim. And they really don't like them being in, but because of Jesus they gotta get in, but now we gotta make them be like us. Get them to stop eating pork, get them to cut their foreskins off and stop wearing unkosher clothing and all the other stuff. That's that's where that's where he is right here. He's angry at the Jewish Christian community who are judging and, and and proclaiming that the Gentile Christian community isn't good enough. And these are the people to whom he has been made an apostle. The Gentile Christian community. He's defending his own community. Those whom he have, who, those Christians he has made. Put it that way. Now He's writing this to the Roman church, but they have the same problems there as exist elsewhere, where you have Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And the Jewish Christians are sitting there saying, well, you're not good enough. I smell bacon on you.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> for the, for, verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Remember the promise we are talking about a second ago? <laughs> Nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebecca when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac, even before they had been born, or had done anything good or bad, so that God's promise of election might continue, not by works but but by His call. She was told the elder shall serve the younger. It wasn't anything that they did fundamentally? Well, yeah. I mean, uh. Esau wasn't, you know, happened to like food more than promises and, and all, but that's beside the point. The promise was, the, 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 the statement was made even before, before they were born. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have aided, hated Esau. I have preferred Esau less. What then are we to say? Is there an injustice on God's part? Here we go. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Hell no. May for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Those who get mercy and compassion, oh, they don't deserve it. But Jacob certainly didn't deserve it. Either preborn or in his whole life. Dirty, rotten scoundrel. None of us deserve it. Nobody deserves it. Yet God decides he's going to have mercy on who he has mercy. And compassion on who he has compassion so it depends not on human will or exertion, not by your ability to approximate the law, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be, may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. And that's the that is the proof text for all superlapsarian double barrel predestinarians who want to say that God chooses whom God wants to choose and chooses whom the God doesn't want to choose. You know. Heaven, heaven, hell, hell, heaven, heaven, hell, hell. <laughs> I mean that's that's that that's the one they pull.
2: Hey, wait which minute. which suit are you to Hey, wait a minute.
1: <laughs> you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? How can God say that you you know you' How, how can when he when made the decision ahead of time? How can God find fault? For who can resist His will? Well, Good question. <laughs> That's a good question. Thank you, Paul. But who indeed
2: are you, a human
1: being, to argue with God?
2: <laughs> the proverbial mosquito on the railroad track, trying to you know argue mm-hmm. with the
1: train. Exactly. Time. Well, what is molded? Say to the one who molds it. Why have you made me like this? <laughs> Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? I mean, if God wants to make you into a nice wine, boss, that's wonderful. But if God has wanted to make you into a, oh, I don't know, bedpan, isn't that still God's decision? And you're made by the potter in such a way that you have a purpose and a role. It may be to be a bedpan and you may not like that, but that's your job. Bedpans for Jesus? (laughs) What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? Made for destruction. Objects of wrath. People. People. Thank you. Objects
4: of mercy.
1: People. Mm -hmm. And what He has done in order to make known the riches of His glory for the objects of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I mean, the Calvinists love that one. That's the same as verse 18. Right. Objects made for wrath. That's part of that Calvinist predetermination stuff that makes some of us really squirm this idea. But what is made for wrath? Now, take it out of its individualness for just a second. Take it out of individuals and think about classifications. Classifications. What gets mercy? Or what classification of people get mercy? Faithers. People who exercise faith. What classification doesn't get mercy? Non-believers and non-faithers. Non-faithers. People who do not act in faith.
4: Do not act in faith or just don't have faith?
1: Not acting in faith. To have faith and to act in faith are the same.
4: What do, you, what, what do you say about a good person who's loving and so forth and does everything right but doesn't believe in...
2: Faith is not faith. ethics. they the you same thing. Faith and ethics are not the same thing.
0: I think that's Why does he do it? The biggest our generation. Is we Might be it, I think. We don't know. is synonymous with or has a big part of faithing. And we can, you can, there's plenty of people who are atheists who don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus. Are probably better, you'd rather have them as your neighbor ethically, but there are also some Christians who profess absolutely. Hearts. And they're so also you, be- got, you do have to separate. and I think um, uh, C.S. Lewis does a good job of near Christianity, yeah, talking About the fact that that, yeah, exactly. that person just is <laughs> blessed with a better personality, you know, and but, character than somebody
2: else. Uh, and there are also like statements from both in Paul and in the prophets about God writing the law in people's hearts. And, you know, there are people that Paul talks about earlier in Romans that display that they have the law of God written in their hearts. There's
1: a wonderful prayer in the Book of Common Prayer of the Episcopal Church that says we pray for those whose faith is known only to God. There you go. Absolutely. So that, I mean, well, let's use Gandhi as an example. Now, Gandhi used to say that he'd be a Christian if he could ever meet one. And Gandhi did a lot of good things and lived a life that attempted to articulate and express a solid ethic. Now, does God honor that in heaven? Well, God can if God wishes because of what Jesus did on the cross.
2: Christ is paid. He
1: can, if God can, if God wishes, apply that to, to Gandhi and Gandhi can be in heaven. Now, is Gandhi there? I don't know. And no one can articulate an answer to that based on Scripture.
4: But Paul would have him squashed. No. And Paul is the one the church believes?
1: No, Paul wouldn't have him squashed so much. He as would, would be an
4: object of wrath. He
1: would be an object from, of wrath if that is God's decision. Just as Esau and Jacob... Jacob wasn't the was the object of mercy, and boy, did he need it. And Esau was unfortunately the object of wrath because of God's decision prior to anything that they did.
4: Aren't you making inserting an interpretation of the church over what Paul says? I'm
1: reading it right out of Paul.
4: I didn't say that. What you just interpreted.
1: I don't know. I don't know. You see, the problem is, is the is exactly what the church, not what Paul does. The church will say, okay, Gandhi has to be an object of wrath. How do you know? I don't know. That's one of the reasons why I love it that a church has come up with a prayer for the faith of those whose faith is known only to God. It expresses humility that we don't know. Never says anything
4: about we don't know. Paul says definitely that it's one thing or another. He doesn't believe it. Hey, I know Don't, don't take it. Not says, as
1: as as classifications. Yes, as individuals, he never says that. But so I, take, I don't, know don't take that Bible out of this. The is it's <laughs> kind of funky here, but verse eighteen here says, "So you see, God is kind to some just because He wants to be."
2: How would that cover Gandhi? Just fine.
0: Okay. Absolutely, verse, thank you. Know,
1: yeah. That actually that that That's translation expresses that attitude. Yeah. And and I think it's consistent with Paul in that Paul can tell you, I would say that Paul would say that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you have you can have an assurance that you're in the group that are made for mercy. (laughs) Let the record show that's not a beer. That's a (laughs) now. Paul would say that if you exercise faith, then you can know. That you're a member of the classification made for mercy. But based on what Paul says earlier in Romans, I'm not so sure he's going to say that that if you don't exercise faith, you can know that you're an object made for wrath. That's up to God. That's right. up to God. He's, you're just, living. he's
0: just saying here, there are only two camps you can be in. Correct. One is for wrath and one is for mercy.
2: And in chapter two he says this, you know, he says that it's you know, we can't know. God, you know, God can give mercy to whom he has mercy and, and yeah. Jesus said
0: the same thing, you're either yeah. for me or against me. So there's no neutral. And Paul often says you're either going forward or you're going backwards. There's no neutral here. Yeah.
2: But it seems to so say two teams. Lisa did this a couple of weeks ago that the context for all this and the predestination
1: and all that stuff <laughs> is Paul trying to break the notion that the promise is what makes the difference, and he's saying it's God that makes the difference. And God can pick whomever He or She wants to. Right. And God has determined to provide the promised path to, to whoever you know. You don't have to go through the the law to get to the to the promise. Right, and you just simply exercise faith is one of
3: the one. Of,
1: yeah, I'm going say it that way. One of the
3: sure ways. Yeah, one. Of the- this is his 19th verse, and this one, I was, you can imagine what the Living Bible though. Yeah, sounds eighth, like it said 18th verse. Yeah, 18th and 19th. Well, you know they don't put 18, 19 there. At the end of the paragraph, they say the Living Bible says this proves that God was doing what He had decided from the beginning. It was not because of what the children did, but because of what God wanted and chose. Yeah. That sounds like what you've been saying. And God right? has
1: wanted and chosen to make fathers part of the eternal kingdom. Now, is that the only group? I don't know. That's up to God. But that certain group. Well you have to know as a minister.
4: Well, he doesn't. <laughs> <You're not. laughs> You're You're Jesus Christ. Like We're grateful for you. Want you want my
1: have you have my, my I've already given you my opinion. <laughs> there is a sure and certain way, in my opinion, Jesus Christ. But, okay. Now Beyond that is not my business.
0: Here's a great thought, though. You probably, I didn't really think about it. I was thinking about here, sitting here today. You know, we're in the Easter season. And what if Jesus, who's on the cross, and he's being killed by, murdered by these people, and just so show the absolute wonderfulness about how God wants everybody to be saved. He says, forgive these people, for yeah. they know not what they do. So think about it. We've got two camps here. You've got the wicked those for uh, wickedness, you've got mercy. And we're going to fall in one of those. It goes back to God deciding, God's made it very clear he's a loving, kind, merciful God. He's even going to pray for God to forgive the very people who are murdering him. So it was up to God. In that regard, he'd want everybody.
1: He even reached out and healed Malthus of being having his ear chopped off. Yeah. I mean...
4: just replace it. Jesus, Paul, oh, Jesus. I don't Uh, get that impression from Paul at
1: all. I don't get a negative impression from Paul at all. I see a beautiful connection between Jesus and Paul here. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction. It's not as if it's, you know, well, I'm sorry, off you go. They hang around for a while. (laughs) What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called In- not exclusively. Lee. <laughs> not exclusive. he doesn't say um, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, only us whom he has called. No. Including Including, but not exclusively us. Not exclusively. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he says including, and if it's he only says
4: including, all, including means all and everybody that believes like
3: Paul, and possibly others. This says even us, which is kind of even. Wow, yes. even yes. us. Yeah.
1: could be others too.
0: Probably are others, but certainly yeah, us. That would say,
3: there are others if it says even us
0: this one says even
3: us Mm -hmm. Uh, not only
0: among whom he
3: also called which means he called others
1: even us literally even us whom he also called who he also called whom he also called
0: even us not only from among the Jews but also from among other nations now notice
1: that amongst the Gentiles The, the statement is here is clear it's called not just from Jews, but from Gentiles. It's not an exclusive community. You can come from anywhere and enter into this community's this faith position. As indeed he is, uh, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them. You are not my people. There. They shall be called children. Of the living God. What do you think of that? Here we got a people. About whom it was proclaimed. Not my people. And I will call them my people. And a people who was not beloved and I will call beloved written this comes from the hebraic frame all right now when hebrews take a look jews especially but when they take a look at the world outside of the covenant outside of the people of abraham what do they see
2: well, they say yeah. the it goyim, it's one mass of
3: dirty, stinking, pork-eating Gentiles. Gentiles. <laughs> exactly what they Them and us.
2: Whom they do not
1: like. Who are outsiders. Who have to go through but a whole... Sorry, who's saying
3: this?
1: Jews. No, this is what all Jews, all Jews are saying. Say this was, well, this is a general attitude amongst Most Jews in Paul's day towards people who are outside. You see it throughout Scripture, you see it in the writings of the people of the Jews, like Philo and Josephus of his day. The basic attitude of the Jewish people around this period of time was. And just to be fair, the basic attitude of the Gentiles towards the Jews were.
3: They didn't like each other. Well, didn't the Jews think they were the chosen ones? Am I mistaken? Yeah, again and again. Of course they were, because
1: they're the children of Abraham. That's the whole point totally. of the problem that they had with all these Gentiles exactly. coming in.
3: So That's why the, wouldn't the Gentiles not like them too much? You think you're the chosen ones? What no. about us?
1: It was mutual hatred. Okay. Makes sense. And there's a mutuality here, but it still it existed. Those are not God's people, and they are not beloved of God. And Hosea says here, "Those who were not my people." I will call my people. And those. And her who was not beloved. I will call it beloved. Now the, the original context here is somewhat different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But Paul is using this. Outside its context. And applying it. Specifically. To Gentile believers. Faithers. Christians. He's taking it from its original context. In reference to the northern kingdom Israel. And he's applying it. To all Gentile believers, that's how he's, That's what he's doing with it.
0: Do you think he knew that the uh, northern tribes were now part of? Do you think he of the knew, Gentile communities? Yes. Do you think he he had that enlightenment at that time? I at, think the northern absolutely. tribe. At and that, really, he could have been. He was speaking. I mean, the people of Rome. At
1: that point in time, there seems to be good indication that that. There was knowledge amongst the Jews that the quote unquote ten lost tribes had been dispersed throughout the Gentile world.
0: Well, even James says it. He uh-huh. starts off his own saying, There
1: seems to be a general understanding that that was the case. But that's not very good for them because the Jews of the southern kingdom hated the Hebrew people of the northern kingdom, the Israelites. But that's, okay.
2: where, that's where this is not so much out of context, really.
1: Well, yes, case. but what Paul is doing is he's universalizing it even beyond that group to all Gentiles. But
2: the analogy
1: holds. He, it's based on the original analogy, but it's an expansion of it. Yeah, think
2: that's, that's why he is
1: taking it out of its initial context, but with justification.
2: You're making a principle. He's displaying principle. Based on the
1: principle thereof, yes.
3: Yes.
0: And, and really, until Christ died, he couldn't have... Use that application because those people were divorced and under those northern <laughs> tribes were actually divorced and they could not be brought back.
1: And Based on the earlier arguments he makes about marriage, yes. Exactly.
0: Until the, the husband mm-hmm. died.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, but I, I don't want to get... I don't want to lose track of the whole his whole argument here, which is to take it and expand it for all Gentiles.
0: But it does show... Uh, great consistency I think that when you, when you study the whole book and you see that that consistency God has in keeping his own word and not forgetting things and bringing it back it, it, to me it emboldens your faith mm-hmm. and it gives you more confidence to trust mm-hmm. in this God because of uh, what he's done in the past
1: a Jew looking out will say they are not God's people well, God knows who's God's people are And that's what's being said here. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They don't have to become Jews. They don't have to go back to Palestine for this. They don't have to. They don't have to become circumcised and dietary regulations and all that stuff. In the very place... Where it was said to them in Rome and England and Russia, Spain. <laughs> even in China, even if it's not the people that originally was a reference to, Paul's expanding this, to them, uh, the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. They will become children of, they will be known as the children of the living God, even despite the fact that they're not Jews. What? This is coming from Hosea, Old Testament prophet. Prophet with regards to the northern kingdom actually. And here it's being taken and applied I think universally to all people who are said to be not my right people. There they will be called children of the living God. And there's a context here involved, it's the context of faith. Why are they called children of the living God? Because of their faith. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved.
0: Can I just ask you a question? Yes. Wouldn't wouldn't that be a nice... I mean, it, it seems to me that he's talking about that... The, the Israel, the northern tribes there were not my people. Now, yes, you can apply it more generically, but he's also now continuing that same theme of even Isaiah talks about Israel, just like Hosea was talking yes. about Israel.
1: Talking Here, about Israel, both in its original sense, the northern kingdom, and in its new applicable sense, the true children of Abraham, spiritually, the true children of Abraham, the true Isaac-Jacob line, are those who have faith. So you've got the biological line, but you've got the faith line. And that faith line is now those who have faith in Jesus. with faith in God through Jesus, is another way of saying. So it has that application. Absolutely. These are connected statements. Though the number of children of Israel were like the sand of the sea, that's that's the promise, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth quickly and decisively. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left survivors to us, we would have fared like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. Wiped uh, to pieces. White to pieces. So he's saying
4: here only a remnant will be saved. He's saying this to certain people?
3: Those who exercise faith for sure. Uh, which he's already chosen, by the way.
1: Well, yeah, but God uh, yeah. and God has chosen not just that, but because time is not an issue to God, we are running on through that. Yeah. But also the very the very category of favors.
4: A small remnant.
1: Yeah. Well, you well, know, it depends on how you define small.
2: <laughs> small but relative
1: to the whole earth, it's small, whatever that is. Anything less than the, than the whole, or in my opinion, is small, but let's keep going. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. Now, this really is his whole point, right here. The whole rock point, the whole reason why he's been arguing here for several chapters. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness. They didn't do what the Jewish Jews did, and the Jewish Christians are still doing, which is trying to build their own righteousness. No. Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. But Israel. And here he's making a, he's connecting that word now actually to the Jews. But Israel, who did strive for righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Notice the difference. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith. But as, it, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble a rock that will make them fall and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Instead of depending upon that stumbling stone, Jesus, they depend upon themselves. No, I can't depend upon Jesus. I've got to do it myself. I've got to be circumcised and not eat pork and I've got to wear clothing that is only in one thread and I've got to obey all the blood purity laws and all that stuff. I've got to do all that good stuff and be a good Jew. And that way I build my righteousness. My righteousness. Not the righteousness of God. And what Paul is saying, no, it's by faith that God's righteousness is applied, attained. Not by works, but by faith. Which has been the whole argument all along. And what he's saying to the Jewish Christian community that is attacking the Gentile Christian community is very simple: they have attained righteousness by faith. You're, along with your brothers who are still only in Judaism, you're attempting to obtain righteousness by works, and you're telling them that they've got it too. And he's really, he's really pissed about that, just as he was pissed in Galatians. That here these people came along after him and told these Gentile believers, okay, it's a good thing you're a Christian, now you gentlemen get circumcised, you ladies start cooking kosher. And he was really mad about that. He called it not another gospel, but a message of Satan. Any questions?
3: You made it to 10. That was my objective. (laughs) And we we did it in an hour too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Any questions? I would think that um, I, I don't quite
0: understand um, when I look at Paul and I see him writing here I see him defending um, the, the Christians, the, the, the people who believe in Jesus by faith and he's, he's defending them against those people who want to put restrictions on them and say
4: faith isn't enough,
0: you need to do more than that and I get the impression that you don't see it that way. That you see it more almost in reverse. That Paul's laying rules on them to be a Christian.
4: I just feel that Paul is hard. And he's just looking out for people who believe in Christ. And that puts us in an odd position because if we think Paul's view, everybody else is meaningless.
0: I think Paul was being hard on the people who were faithers, people who were Christians, because he was being hard on those people because they were saying that what they had was not enough. You needed to do such and such and Paul wanted to make sure that he kept the purity of what faith in Jesus meant. And he wasn't
3: hard on the faithers, he was hard on the people that weren't faithers. He was hard Christians. on the
0: people who were attacking them.
4: There you go. The brethren James. Yeah. Right. But See, we take Paul and say like, okay, he was talking in just this situation right? and you fault
1: Paul for how the church is interpreted
0: if <laughs> I think Paul would fight, against, fight for
1: you against the
0: church I think Paul would say some of the same things to many of the churches here today oh, so absolutely. Absolutely. what's that that they are imposing rules and regulations and behavioral works on people who just are favored that that's enough God will work through them however he sees fit and it may not, you may not look like brother James over here
4: What if you're not a Christian? No, he never said that. Paul's saying, you can't say that you're not a Christian because you don't act like James. No, what if you're not a Christian? How do you know? God knows. No, what if you're of a different faith all than are Christianity? Well, that's where... That's up to God then.
2: That's where the humility comes in. Which is what he said in chapter 2. That's exactly what he said in chapter 2. What? That it's, you know, God's sovereignty. It's that, you know, we... There are are those that we have no way of knowing that God, you know, that react to the light they have... Who've never heard the gospel. And God has the right to deal with them accordingly. I
3: think you're getting, I think the church does have a tendency to put Paul and John together, and that's dangerous, depending on how they put them together. And yet, Paul and John work beautifully hand in glove in absolute ways. ways. They do, but not when you say that you can only come through him, come to my kingdom through Jesus. Well, John, what Paul that. says, oh yeah, well, if you don't faith then you
1: and, and believe it, in Christ, but, dead. Take, but takes the step, but take the step of realizing that yeah, there is only way to heaven and that's through Jesus. What Jesus did.
3: There you go. One more step. That door. But you're assuming Jesus. that that intelligence. And, and what
1: Jesus did was an act of faith, which is what Paul is talking about. Acting in faith,
0: and even the Jews that were putting him on that cross, Jesus Himself said, "Forgive them,
1: for they for know not." Mm-hmm. But that's Jesus, not Paul. And yet, Paul. But you're trying to create a dichotomy between Jesus and Paul. Yes,
4: I am, because Paul speaks to a particular subject. You say right. we don't think it is that. We take this as the basis for the church. We expand it for
1: Well, it, it, it has many principles that apply across the church. Yes, absolutely. And thank God. I'd rather be in a Pauline church than a Jamesian church. A Jamesian church is the kind of church that looks at you and say, You don't do the kind of things that I think you should do. And you do the kind of things I think you shouldn't do. Therefore, you cannot be a member of this church. And you've got to change to be a member of this church. Paul would never say that. He'd say, exercise faith. I can't Salvation this. is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through doing the works of the law. Name one single work of the law Paul required. One. Name one single work of the law that Paul required.
4: Well, you have to be like Paul. Because he, he has its high standards and everybody has to beat them. Where do you get, get where you get that? Well, Paul's saved, okay, and he knows he's saved.
1: And yet he de- and yet he says he he goes to um, in in Second Corinthians he tells the story about going to Jesus with because he has this thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him to tell him that he can never be forgiven, and he goes to Jesus and he begs Jesus, please. Take this thorn away from me, this messenger of Satan, this continual din of you can't be forgiven for having persecuted the church. You might as well give up Paul and stop preaching the gospel because you will go to hell because of what you did to persecute the church. And he goes to Jesus and he says, please, please, please relieve me of this thorn. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul continually struggled with the thought that he might not actually be saved because of what he had done. And it continually plagued him. One of the things that the Jewish Christians, the brethren of James, were doing was saying, you can't trust Paul because he once persecuted the church. They kept on bringing it up. That's a manifestation of the messenger of Satan, the thorn in the flesh. They kept on bringing it up again and again and again. And I think he struggled with the idea that he was truly truly saved and doubted it. Not because of of what he had done to the church. Anything else before we call it quits for tonight? Pick up the chapter 10 next week. For for
3: next week, I want you to get to the... For next week, I'd I'd like to hear you say something about Paul quoting the Old Testament there again uh, uh, about the stumbling and comparing Jesus to the, if I'm reading it right, as a stumbling uh, stone that makes other people fall. How and does,
1: how does, how does Jesus make good Jews fall? You can do it right now. How does Jesus oh, make okay. good Jews fall? They don't believe
3: in mm, More specifically than that. They believe in uh, the law and doing, making themselves righteous rather than faithing to God. Thank you. The standard Jewish approach and it's a problem for the Jewish
1: Christians too. The standard Jewish approach is... Build your own righteousness... By your ability to approximate the standard of the law. Not by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by faith in God. But by your own ability to do good works.
0: That's these ethics examples. Good works.
4: Yes. Good works. Good works. about faith was the like that? I think good works... the That's exactly what I'm saying. The Jews believe
1: that... The Jewish people believe that it was by good works... That you built righteousness. That's what
4: they believed. That's what they had to believe. They were told to believe that.
1: They were
2: wrong.
4: (laughs) 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 That's what Jesus said. So God was wrong in telling them to do that?
2: And their own prophets said the same thing. But prophets said the the same thing. Before, Before Paul. Paul. And yeah. Paul quotes those prophets. And Paul quotes those prophets. And I just think that was being kind of harsh.
3: <laughs> I agree with Leon, I hey, I there might been, that's that's what on that. That's what I'm saying. There's been a little bit better God, way to put it.
0: God not, says instead of making them fall. But the people over time changed the law.
1: Modified so it. They modified expanded it.
0: Expanded it. So by the time you get down to Jesus, and it's just like the same thing I asked Dr. Neal earlier, was today the Jews don't do sacrifices. And if you go back to the law, God said that was the key to them being right with him. Mm-hmm. and But we if over time we've changed that and we've defined our own law, wouldn't you agree it no longer becomes God's law? And just because people believe that and practice that, if it's not God's law.
4: Well, you, what about keeping slaves? Do you, you think we should go back to keeping slaves? What does that have to do with... Well, that was Jesus. Jesus said, you know, you had to do certain things for your slave and so forth. Well, we found out no. We really... Here's a way in
1: which that, okay, Paul says in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. He destroys the cultural stratification between Jews and Greeks. Ooh, that was terrible. Between slaves and free, that was terrible. Between men and women, that was terrible. All three of those were horrible for both sides of the equation Jew and Gentile. Paul. Paul, hard, hard-ass hard Paul, destroys that and says, no, in Christ we're all what? Church
4: didn't accept it. Church is wrong. <laughs> and- Whoopee! <Won't be. laughs> Thank you!
1: <laughs> what I'm trying to say, and I think you would agree, well, I would pray you might agree at least with peace of this. The church has screwed up Paul's message oh. repeatedly throughout the last 2,000 years. Uh, They've accepted peace here, peace here, peace there,
2: and ignored the rest. I, I would say that's one of the greatest understatements I've ever heard. Of
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it has. Well, through most of the history of the church, you can even, you can't even barely recognize the message of Paul. It's, it's well, almost if again.
1: you read carefully, you can find the message of Paul repeated throughout the church history. But he's always being rediscovered. After, after the church gets done crapping on Paul, then someone comes along like Martin Luther and reaches into the crap and pulls Paul back out. And dust wipes him off washes him, (laughs) hoses him down (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) says, says, here, Paul is saying salvation is by grace through faith, not by works, not by approximating a standard that a church has set up, not by trying to do something that elevates yourself over others, but simply by grace through faith. That is where salvation comes. And Paul himself articulates Christ, faith in Christ. But even prior to that, it's faith, period, in God. always has been. From Abraham Abraham, on? Actually, Actually, even before that. From Adam and Eve on, had they had faith in God, there wouldn't have been the problem of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Simple faith in God would have said... Why do you need to have that knowledge? Yeah. But they refuse to exercise.
0: And Paul's irritation and his harshness comes against anybody who wants to make salvation more than faith in Christ or faith in God. Huh. Exactly.
1: Um, you know, you say, I'm supposed to know this answer because I'm a minister. Yes. Um, I. I. I... I I try to exercise humility there. I can say. Because of what Jesus did. Anybody can be saved. Even everybody. Can be saved. Because of what Jesus did. Now not everybody is. I wish everybody were. There's a good. There's a good indication. Through history. That not everybody is. But who those are outside of the sure and certain way of faith in Jesus Christ, I cannot and will not say. Just as I am not going to sit here and say you've got to abide by this approximation of what it means to be a good person in order to be saved. You've got to do this and 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 not do this and not do this and not do this and not do this. It's usually twice as many. Not do's as do's. I'm not going to do that because you can't. That's what most of the church does. I love John Wesley. I love the basic theology he articulated. But the man was an absolute whack job when it came to determining what the best way it was to be a Christian.
3: I think he would be the hard ass compared to you? Compared
1: to Paul, John Wesley was a super hard ass. Super hard ass. Yeah.
4: He had rules. You
1: had to get up. You had to get up. Before roosters get up, like four o'clock, the time you want to go out and take a look at the stars, four o'clock in the morning, and pray until sunup. And, and he lived by a structure rich, it worked for him, a structure and rigid life. And he said, you should do it too. And most of the churches said, you're crazy, John. And, and he was crazy.
0: John Wesley was nuts. But isn't that human nature? You have yes. something that you feel is so great. You, you want, want you now. think everybody should do it your
1: way. The specifics of his method worked beautifully for him in a very small group of people. The generalities of the method that lies behind Methodism works and has worked since Paul's day. John Wesley didn't invent it. He just resurrected it. The, the generalities work beautifully. They're based in faith. With certain conceptual labels attached. Exercising faith by partaking of the means of grace. The means of grace are instruments that are faith instruments that we put into action and and, and attain God's mercy and favor. It's a beautiful system, a structured system that John Wesley didn't invent. He adopted it. But he was a hard ass in the particularities. He said if you did not go to Sunday school, you couldn't go to church and receive communion. If you didn't go to class meeting, you couldn't go to church, you couldn't receive communion. We talk about open table. And in terms of in terms of denominational affiliation, John Wesley would agree with that. But you had to have gone to camp, to class meeting and gotten a ticket. And then you go to worship and present that ticket to receive communion. That, John Wesley was a hard, hard ass.
4: Right.
2: We might do that in charge of the ticket. That yeah, that's right. a, way, a way to raise the budget. That's a way to raise the budget. Was on to something.
1: But he, he, you know, I, I disagree with him in, in the fundamental sense. But he was a, he had a hard, structured system. I love John him. Wesley. He was wrong.
3: <laughs> He could sure write songs, he and his brother. Right?
1: He got himself into, su- yeah, songs. yeah. He got himself into a ton of trouble when he was a missionary in America. He was a missionary yes, was. in Georgia. Yes. Yes, and yes. He, got, he got himself yes, into yes. trouble. He was lecture- teaching one of his church members, Sophie Hopke, teaching her Latin. She thought he was coming on to her. And guess what? He probably was. But he did not propose marriage. She turned
2: 16,
1: and that was a big no-no. Sitting in a room alone with her, teaching her Latin right up next to her, she was expecting a proposal of marriage from the single clergyman. And he didn't propose marriage to her, so there was going to be a shotgun wedding. And John Wesley got on his horse and rode north to get away from that and got on a ship and went back to England. The man was absolutely nuts. Had, the charges were filed against him. They had a church trial and they had to be waived. Because they said there was no proof. John <laughs> Wesley was a nut. He was an absolute nut. But I, I, I love I loved him and I love many of the uh, most of his theology that he articulates. But
0: I man was a nut. You could look at a lot of the heroes of faith. Martin Luther was, right. was a nut.
1: Martin Luther, in his table talks, was asked, can you have communion with beer and pretzels? He said yes. (laughs) That'd be good (laughs) news. I think it's a great idea. (laughs) What's wrong with that? And the problem with that is... (laughs)
2: Hey, pretzels I are closer to unleavened bread, than a
3: king's
0: Hawaiian bread. Yeah,
1: I know. <laughs> yeah. You're, uh, you're getting, you're getting it. The discerning tarn- tarn- of what it
0: is, isn't it? The remembering, whether it's bread or a pretzel, isn't it? The, it's isn't it the remembering that is the important oh, thing. Oh, here we go. <laughs> uh, it depends
3: where you remember when you have that memory. Open the Pandora's box. You that's that's
1: Saturday I, Night Football. I spent too many years piling that on. higher and deeper, my friend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in turn, uh, uh, fundamentally, it it, as a means of grace, it is a method for for receiving Christ Jesus anew and afresh into our lives, for Christ is formed in our heart by faith. Fundamentally, coming to the table of the Lord and receiving Holy Communion is simply a simple focus of faith, focusing in on those elements, partaking of the bread and the cup, and thereby making a faith connection with Christ. And Christ is formed in your heart by faith. So and whether it's a cracker you, and water, or um, bread and
0: wine, or a beer and a pretzel, or...
1: Okay, let me, let me give you two, two distinctions. Theologically, fundamentally, absolutely. Churches have rules and regulations that you only do it certain ways. And I accept that being a member of my denomination. But fundamentally, theologically, that's why a love feast where you have bread and water is as much a means of grace as communion with bread and wine. It's as much a means of grace it's just that churches, in the way in which they organize themselves their and their theologies, have recognized the nature of communion as being mm-hmm. a special
0: case. Okay, so if you forget the churches and you go back to Christ, mm-hmm. Passover night, breaking the bread, and breaking, they haven't had wine. It but, doesn't have to be with bread. It doesn't have to be with wine. Well,
1: no, it, not as a means of grace. As but a as fundamental. A as a. Well. The question is, sure. what makes a sacrament? There you go. Now, my, the, my one unique contribution to Christian theology.
2: I was just going to say, everybody here get a copy of Greg's book. <laughs> our Sunday school class
3: did it, and we invited the the guest, the guest lecturer to the book. <laughs> my
0: one
1: unique contribution to Christian theology has been, on this subject, has been the definition of a sacrament as a means of grace which occasions faith and requires faith to complete it. So that there are many means of grace beyond the two sacraments or twelve or whatever. There are thousands of sacraments. I mean means of grace. Thousands, thousands of means of grace. Each and every one of them can become a sacrament, can become a sacrament, When one responds to it by faith, it then becomes sacramental in character because it brings sanctification. That's the definition of a sacrament. So Protestants, as a grouping, are wrong in saying there are only two sacraments. I'm saying this as a Protestant Clergymen. There are only two sacraments. This still recording. <laughs> the red lights on. It didn't run out of power tonight. The, the Protestants say there are only two sacraments: baptism, holy communion, because Jesus established them. They're called dominical sacraments. As a result, John Wesley and others in the in the in the Anglican community and all have said there are sacramentals beyond the sacraments that are means of grace that have sacramental qualities when one responds to them in faith. But the two principal sacraments baptism and Holy Communion are dominical sacraments because Jesus established them. But Jesus also established forgiveness. He also established foot washing. He also established marriage, ordination. I mean, come on. More than the twelve, too, by the way, of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. So, what I'm saying is that the definition that Protestants have applied to establish a means of grace as a sacrament is overly limited if it's limited to those two. So, what I have said is any time a means of grace is responded to with faith, it becomes a sacrament. A it becomes sacramental because a connection is made god 's grace flows, and you are sanctified at least in some way. you complete it that 's why I also say baptism is incomplete until a response of faith occurs. Hence, when I do an infant baptism, the response of faith is necessary for that baptism to be completed. God's action is finished, it's complete, it's sure. God's grace is preveniently proclaimed. Our response, justifying response of faith, is required to bring it to its fruition, its completion. That's a sacramental understanding of baptism. Um, But that's my one unique contribution, is to say that I have been I was pilloried for it at one point by several Protestant clergy scholar friends of mine. So called friends of mine, but but at the same time, the, the General Commission on Holy Communion of the United Methodist Church took a look at my definition and said we agree. Mm-hmm. And they quoted John Wesley himself when he talked about the other means of grace that are sacramental in character and rise to the level level of sacramentality when faith is placed into the mix. And they said something that I also agree with, quoting John Wesley on that. There is a particular character, though, to baptism and communion that places them above the other means of grace because of their nature of initiation and baptism and sanctification and holy communion. Now, the others bring those two You can be initiated by any means of grace. You can be sanctified by any means of grace. But those two particularly, and the importance that they they played in Jesus' own ministry, were critical. Jesus never baptized anybody specifically. But he ordered us to go and baptize and make disciples. And he established the Lord's Supper as the way in which we are remembered to Jesus.
2: And ordered us to continue to do it.
1: And told us to continue. To, but he also told us to wash each other's feet. And to forgive. And to do all the others too. The but part but the particularity really. of community. And part of it is tradition. Throughout 2000 years of the church. Beginning in the Acts of the Apostles. Those two. Had a preeminence. Of practice. So I do agree that those two are above. In a sense. If you want to try to skip, you know grade eight them. Above the others. But the others can raise, rise to that sacramental level when they are completed.
0: My, my question was... I'm sorry. You, no, well, no, 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 that's all very good information, but I just want to be clear to see if we're on the same page in terms of whether it's a cracker or it's a piece of bread.
1: Cracker is bread.
0: Or if it's a, a piece, of, if it's a pretzel, or if it's water, or a grape Pretzel juice. is a
1: piece of bread. <laughs>
0: Keep going. Okay. Whatever. let so right. me wine out versus water. you know water. Okay. okay.
1: Okay. That's a good one. Because okay. if you if you'd said okay. grape juice, I was going to get you because yeah. the instant that grape juice right is from is, from is crushed, rice. it starts to ferment. But okay. You know, <laughs> <laughs> wine versus, you know, that's versus that's water. water. Okay. Yeah. You
0: know, if you, if you let's say you, you take you have the water and you have the bread and you are doing that in remembrance, like Jesus said, Mm -hmm. is it not communion?
1: And it's... mm, It's a means of grace. The church has historically identified that, and I say historically, I mean going back nearly 2,000 years, has identified water and bread as as a sacramental means of grace, but not communion.
0: Why?
1: Because... When Jesus established it, he established it in the context of Passover Seder where he used the, the particular cups of wine in the Passover Seder and he used the bread and he used them and he transformed their meaning in the process of using them um, and and established, established the new Passover. Christ Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. Christ Jesus becomes our Passover. And... And by taking those elements, he transforms their meaning. That makes them extremely special. It's one of the reasons why. I do have a problem with using unfermented or (laughs) low-fermented grape (laughs) juice and leavened bread. But the practice thereof, I I would be guilty of works and, and elevating the importance of works over the nature of grace, if I were to say we could only have communion with wine and unleavened bread. But wine and unleavened bread would more perfectly demonstrate the nature of his institution of the sacrament itself by converting the Passover Seder. Um, it's not just convenience, it's it, it, by doing it the other way, it's not, you don't push people away when you use a more traditional loaf of bread like Oh, and Of course, the kids love it because they get to the finish it. Exactly. Well, I like it too. I like it too. I mean, you know, but please don't put when you, when you take the leftovers home to eat them, don't put Jesus in the microwave and add butter to yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> I say that only halfway joking. <laughs> um, but but the, my point is that the bread and water is a sacramental event. It's a means of grace and raises, rises to that level. That communion has. But communion it acts, is, But it is a different entity as an act because one Jesus established, the other Jesus did not directly. You did have bread and, and water and other events. You had the feeding of the 5,000. You have other feeding, nourishing events that can be connected to that. But but it is still a separate event. And denominations have rules as to how you go about that stuff. That's fine. That's a different subject. That's a different subject. Theologically speaking, communion is a different thing. I'll use the word ontologically. It's different than a love feast. Both are means of grace. One was established specifically by Christ. One is done as a practice in coherence with Jesus, but not built on any one specific commandment.
0: When you say love feast, are you, uh, they uh, taking the bread and the wine? No, love feast, a love feast
1: is a practice of, in Protestantism today is rooted in the Moravian practice of where you get together, you have a large meal, and at a certain part of the meal you have a bit of bread or cracker, Uh, certain kinds of bread, cookies almost, bread, cookies, and water. And you have a special prayer that you say with each. That actually is a tradition that predated the Moravians and went way back in the history of the church. Um, And was the practice of a, a means of grace that the community could celebrate without the presence of the ministerial leader of the community, the elder or priest of the community. The Eucharist was always reserved for either the bishop or the priest of the community, the elder of the community, to to lead as a representative of God to the people and the people to God. The love feast is the people's feast that can be done even without the minister. And that that was practiced through the church going back centuries, all the way to the earliest references we have to this late second century. So it was a very early practice of establishing a feast that could be celebrated without the presence of the of the elders of the community, and it could be done anywhere by anybody so long as they were a Christian.
0: When Jesus established the Passover, um, taking the bread
1: taking God. the Passover Seder and converting the people, it's a
0: do this in remembrance of me. Uh-huh. Um, was he specifically then limiting it to? When you're doing it at Passover.
1: No. He was converting the whole Passover proclamation itself, making himself that Passover. Hence every time we meet to proclaim Christ Jesus, we are proclaiming the Passover of God. And any time the community or a fraction of the community that meets with its recognized leadership, I don't care how you define that, you you can you should celebrate the Passover of God. And I, the, I think that goes
2: along with what Paul was saying. He said about you know, the, the set times, the appointed times of the Lord, the feast days of the Lord being the shadows of things that were exactly, to come, exactly. and the fulfillment of being in Christ. So whenever we are in Christ, and whenever we are celebrating Christ, we are celebrating, because he said Christ is our Passover. So That's exactly right.
1: That's exactly right. When, when we celebrate communion... We are proclaiming Christ's death until He comes as part of the pro- how Jesus defined it, and we are doing what the Israelites did in the original Passover. We are proclaiming our connection to to God, our allegiance to God, and we're trusting
2: in Him through the sacrifice that play, you know placed blood on the doorpost. And, you know, yeah.
1: So those are the exterior symbols, yeah, and we're then partaking of that lamb. <laughs> Who was slaughtered, they ate the meat and all. We are partaking of the nourishment which Christ provides us, which is Christ's very self, his very indwelling presence. And when we eat by faith. And then the angel of death, who <clears throat> is then typified by eternal death, uh, passes over. We are not touched by death
3: eternal because of that. And we don't have to have the bitters.
1: No, we don't have all the other stuff. That all got kind of pushed aside with the importance of the cup and the bread. So he redefined that. And that actually was a serious problem between the Jewish Christian community in its early formation and the Jews. Because the Jewish Christian community would still celebrate Passover, (laughs) But then they would also celebrate communion together every time they would meet in their homes together. They, their leader of their community or their whatever it was, however they defined it. We don't really know at that point early on in, in Acts of the Apostles. The terms are not given. The leader there would would partake, would lead in the actual partaking of the of of the bread and the cup, and in, in its blessing and in its distribution. They would do it every time they met according to the Acts of the Apostles, certainly on the Lord's Day. And yet they would still go to the temple, they'd still go to the synagogue. And partake that way too. And the Jews were looking upon these Jewish Christians and saying, You're perverting the the, the Passover. You're doing the Seder every week. <laughs> every day you're doing the Seder. And and that that's a misunderstanding and perversion of our ancestry in our, in our scriptures. Because one of the clashes was that re- reinterpretation of of the Passover. It still makes Jews uncomfortable when we talk about Christ Jesus as our Passover. It really does.
0: Did
3: that answer the question
0: at all? Yeah, I'm going to go back and read the, the section a little bit more, really, because I... I um do this in remembrance of me taking the, the bread and the wine. I, I, never, I never thought of it as being limited to the specifics of doing it on Passover, but more whenever you eat, you know, whenever you take the eat, you can take the, the drink and the bread and remember me. And, do, and when, you do, when you do it and remember me, you are fulfilling what he said when he said do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you take that bread and take that drink and you take it in full knowledge of you're doing it because you are pausing and you're liking and remembering Christ and what He did for you, that that's fulfilling what He said. I never really thought that it had to be a specific bread or a specific drink for well, it done only at Passover. But no, well, I, I wouldn't
1: say it needs to be done only at Passover. That's, well, that was the problem right. that the Jews had with the Jewish Christian community. Right. You call yourself Jews and yet you're celebrating the Passover every day.
0: But he st- he did it on Passover for specifically, right. obviously, and he was using the items that it was there. And my Correct. question was, so if time. you use water and bread, why, if you're doing it in remembrance of him, okay. why would it not? That makes it, so- it
1: a means of grace. I completely agree with you. That but is a means of grace. It wouldn't be
0: following what he, he the example he was setting on that Passover night. By extension, yes,
1: but not specifically. Because he was taking the very Passover itself, the very theological well, meaning of the specifically Passover. Specifically,
0: if you don't use the same type of bread, you're not doing it specifically either.
1: Right. <laughs> so, so, right. Okay. So
0: it really ought to be so, kosher. It really ought to be. Yeah. So, so, sure it doesn't, so. so it doesn't – I mean, doesn't if you really – if you want to be legalistic, mm-hmm. then Yes. But Paul said you have to discern it's all in the discerning. It's not in the it's not in the actual Do you physical dis- Do you,
1: Well, it's in discerning the presence of the body and blood of the Lord. Right. And that discernment has multiple levels and multiple layers, and I would say the body and the blood look, we've been experiencing a means of grace here tonight in several factors. We experienced it in prayer. We experienced it in fellowship. We experienced it in the reading of scripture. We experienced it in the discussion of scripture. All of those levels we experienced when you were playing earlier. We were singing a hymn. That's a means of, all of those are means of grace. And in so doing, we were being, when we, we were being connected, we were being connected to Christ Jesus and receiving sanctifying grace in the process thereof. And as such, those were sacramental in character, not unlike
0: communion. Right, but I'm speaking specifically of the precedent that Jesus set forth on that Passover night when he said, When you eat and drink, do this in remembrance of me.
1: When you eat and drink of the Christian Passover. That's how I understand that. In taking this that. He chose that meal for a specific reason. He could have done it at any other time, too. Well, yeah, because he chose that specific meal because of what he was getting ready to proclaim. The typology, the, past, the, the typology of the Passover lamb in the Exodus. He is that Passover That's lamb why for I asked, us.
0: Is it then only when we celebrate Passover? or no, because we're
1: not tied. Because Christ is our Passover, we celebrate that every time. We, we should, should celebrate it, it every it week. Becomes, I, 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 think it becomes,
2: I think it becomes a non-sequitur argument. Because if you're going to say that, if you're going to say that, if you want to literally interpret it as being Jesus saying, well, we can only do it on Passover because Jesus instituted it on Passover. You are bas- basically reverting back to legalism.
0: Yeah. Do you think I was saying that? No, no,
1: but not. no I'm, I'm not saying you're saying and that. And neither am I saying that. And neither was Jesus saying. But if
2: you push those, if you push those things to their extremes, it becomes non sequitur You
1: get the idea of doing it only with unleavened right. bread and only. Well, that's with, what I was saying. If somebody leader, wants to partake
0: of communion as Jesus did in the symbolic reference there, of what he was doing and what he was remembering, why couldn't you be <laughs> just as? Just, be able to do it with a cup of water and a piece of bread, if that's all that you had, or if that's what you wanted to do it with. Okay, if... if why would that not be considered communion? If you're eating... In anything. part
1: due to the tradition of the church.
0: But I want to take the church out of it. I want to go back to... In
1: part due to how Christ instituted the event himself when he took the Passover meal itself and its el- two of its elements...
0: But then why would it why like we one and element and not the other element. Uh, then?
1: There is, there, is so an there is an ontological continuity between any kind of bread and any kind of fruit of the vine grape. Well,
0: that's interesting because they had a specific they made a distinction between the bread. They didn't I don't They made, made a specific a distinction of a of particular
1: kind of bread, a particular kind of wine. And the Jewish practice of the seder, yeah, there's a particular kind of wine you had to be done a particular way, so it would be sure to be kosher. <laughs> they use Minchah, <meneshev> <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's, that's, it's not only kosher, but it's kosher
0: for
3: Passover. It's specifically like for Passover. It's doubly no, blessed. To be to be be honest, be but that's part of traditions of humans.
1: But that that's what they do. Uh, but there is a continuity between any kind of bread, wheat, and any kind of wine, be it grape juice that hasn't fully fermented, has a so slow amount of alcohol that you can't even taste, and know's there, or full-fledged port. I mean, it's <laughs> I love the universal of port. That, come on. <laughs> You're in favor of that? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, it's, there's a continuity of identity between what bread is and what wine is. There's not a continuity of identity between what wine is and what water is.
2: To to and,
1: and there's right. one theological reason why, I even more so, and it's based in the biblical event that when Christ was stabbed in the side to find out if he was still alive, and blood and water flowed, that blood they they flowed separately. And if the wine is supposed to exemplify his his blood, I, I see a problem there between those two conceptions. Um. That's, that's just a, that's a really a side argument. I just see that the issue of, of the nature of those two kinds of elements is so critical in the Passover meal itself, where, with the blessing for the bread and the blessing for the wine that occurs. Blessed our Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives bread, wheat for bread, who gives the fruit of the vine. Those are two prayers of thanksgiving that underlie the the, the Seder event and which Jesus then took and transformed when he proclaimed himself to be our Passover. And that theological connection is made and articulated within communion and those elements are important as such. Now, having said that, I do not think that I have already said and I want to reemphasize receiving getting together and, and giving thanks and partaking of bread and water in thanksgiving for the gifts that God has given us in remembrance of Jesus Christ is absolutely a means of grace
0: which wouldn't be under the category of
1: communion. I wouldn't call it communion that's why maybe the tradition of the church is correct in, in identifying that as a love feast a feast of Christ's love. It is in essence, uh, it is a very much a sacramental. In essence, a sacramental event of a similar type to communion, because it, are, it reflects and proclaims that which nourishes us is God's love. That's one of the things that 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 communion proclaims: is that which nourishes us is God's very presence with us, overshadowing us, protecting us. In all that in all that Christ's presence does, and that's why it's important to discern the presence of Christ, because it is that which is overshadowing us in partaking of the meal. You can do that and proclaim that in a love feast with bread and wine, or my goodness, with steak and potatoes, (laughs) whatever you have to feast on and give thanks to God. And it is therefore sacramental and absolutely a means of grace, but. I still would reserve for that event that Christ established a special character, and refer and 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 reserve the terms Eucharist, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, Holy Communion, all for that event.
2: been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.